What is your last name, Daddy? What is your last name? Zhang. Zhang spelled? D-H-A-N-G. Ah, thank you. It's a popular you know, family name. Yes. <laughs> well, isn't it 99% of people in China, there are 100 family names that cover 99% of people? Isn't that right? Maybe. I think that's right. <laughs> yeah. Where did you study there? Where did you study? What university what in university? China? Uh, I see. Okay. Um, okay, so you're not liking Herbert as much? No, I, I just... I, I do. <laughs> I, I love John so much. Yeah. It's so memorable. I like, don't even remember Johnson or anyone else. Oh, my God. Well, we did spend a lot more time on Dunn. Yeah, I think that's why. But still. Okay, so having told you that we start with Easter wings, let's start with Jordan 1. Jordan <laughs> <laughs> what? Because that's how we do it here. Yeah. Because we do it like that. Yeah. Um, right. Hey, wait. You know, before we even do that, tell me about your play. My play? The play that's going on tomorrow? Isn't that you? I'm not, I'm not in theater. Oh, okay. Maybe maybe <laughs> I saw Nikki and didn't pay attention to the last name. No, I wish. I would love All right, so it's at the Borg News. Did people see that? Absolutely not. No? Okay. All right. Um, I would love to. I think I just saw Nikki, and I thought, how many N-I-K-K-I's are there? Ooh, I'm 1K. Oh, well, that that explains everything. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, or 1K. Um, all right, let's look at Jordan 1 which is page 247 of the Norton. Yeah, and those of you who rightly have the complete Herbert with you. Um, and um, this is um, partly what we've um, talked about on Tuesday, was how a poem like Denial um, is a poem about poetry, that is to say, about the idea that poetry could be a sign of the success of what it is um, appealing for, what it is beseeching. Um, you could think, um, in some ways, that the idea of the muse, the idea that we'll also see in Paradise Lost, that um, a poet appeals to a muse for um, aid in writing the poem um, makes in some deep way, not necessarily a religious way, but um, through a religious kind of metaphor or a uh, divinizing kind of metaphor. Um, the structure of a poem is you ask a muse to help you write the poem and the asking is the answer. Um, that is the poem begins by saying, as Lord Byron does, hail muse, etc. Um, or as Milton does, um, of man's disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man um, restore us and regain the blissful seat. Sing heavenly muse. Um, so the appeal to the muse is what starts the poem. And um, 
since the since the muse is what inspires the poem, since the muse dictates the poem, that's another thing that Milton will say, um, that his muse um, dictates to him slumbering and vouchsafes to him her nightly visitation, unimplored. Um, since the muse is the um, goddess who dictates the poem, the prayer for inspiration gets answered by the fact that you can pray for inspiration, that, um, that um, simply formulating the prayer is the answer to, is, shows that the prayer has been answered. Because you can ask, um, that shows that the muse has given you the power to ask, and that um, vouchsafement of the power to ask is the answer to what you're asking for. Um, so does that make sense to people? It's a really um, deep and old idea in poetry that saying that you want to write the poem is part of the poem. Asking for help in writing the poem is part of the poem that, is part of the poem that you get help with. And um, Herbert is turning that into making that part of the Protestant idea that um, faith and grace are given to you, but what's given to you is the capacity and desire and felt need to pray for faith and grace. So that the same kind of closed circuit that um, in classical poetry and in poetry based on classical poetry, which um, appeals to the muse, you also get in this Protestant idea that faith and grace are their own answers. That if you um, wish for faith, if you desire faith, that desire is a sign that you have faith. Otherwise, you wouldn't desire it. Otherwise, it wouldn't mean anything to you. And so therefore, in a poem like Denial and in other poems, um, can you look up the poem Home? Um, since, as I said, we were going to start with Easter Wings, which sure. meant we were going to start with Jordan 1. Um, take a look at the poem called Home. Um, and <laughs> um, what you get in a poem like Denial or a poem like Home is, or a poem like The Collar, too, is the idea that the answer to the prayer comes again in the fact that you that's that Herbert successfully formulates the prayer that when denial rhymes and chimes at its ending that rhyme and chime means that he gets the he manages to formulate the prayer his thoughts aren't going elsewhere but they're now they're not flying asunder anymore but they're coming together and it's at that point that he can call upon God to defer no time that so um, answering my request, um, so thy, so thy um, answers meeting my request, they in my mind may chime and mend my rhyme. By formulating it right, the end of the poem is its own answer. Can you read the end of the, just read the last stanza of home? The last stanza? Yeah. Come, dearest Lord, pass not this holy season, my flesh and bones joints do pray, and even my verse, when by the rhyme and reason, the word is day, says ever, come, oh, show thyself to me. Yeah, you can skip that. That's just the chorus. So um, 
by the rhyme and reason the word is stay, but his verse says ever come. Why does it, why is the right word stay there? What was the part about come? So read it again. Yeah. yeah, it may it may be easier to see this on the page. Come, dearest Lord, pass not this holy season. My flesh and bones and joints do pray. And even my verse, when by the rhyme and reason the word is stay, says ever come. So do you get that? Like by asking him to come, he's already, if someone would uh, come and say. Well, he's saying come, he's praying, he's saying please come. But why is the, why is the word that you would expect, at least by rhyme, stay? Well, because, right. And the next line it says, like, don't pass, right? Yeah. Um, but what about just by rhyme? The word is, like, because the, the second line is, it ends in pray. Yeah, the rhyme should be pray and stay. And what he does instead is to say, I know that the right rhyming word here is stay, but um, nevertheless, I need you so much that I'm not going to try to rhyme and be clever. I'm going to say come even when the poem would be fine um, if I said stay. Now, by the rhyme and reason, because stay would mean stay here. You are with me, stay with me. But come, in a way, is even more, because it's more beseeching, it's deeper than stay. Stay would indicate a little bit of um, complacency on his part. You're here, that's good, let's keep it like this. Whereas come is, I'm never sure I really want you to come. Even if you're here, I really want you to come. And therefore, I'm not going to rhyme as I could if I just wanted a neat ending here. Rather, I'm going to give up the neat ending in order to keep appealing and to keep saying come, which is the word of appeal. But then one of the amazing ways that you can see that God does come in that poem, and again, it's, it's a pity that it's not in this book, um, but one of the amazing ways that you can see that God does come. How many people bought the penguin? All right. Um, I will send you a copy of this poem because it's a great poem. Um, is that even though um, the rhyme with pray is stay, but he doesn't rhyme pray and stay, he non-rhymes pray and come, um, the word come actually rhymes with the title of the poem. That is, there's a rhyme, it's almost as though he doesn't know that it's rhyming. The speaker of the poem doesn't know that it's rhyming. The poem is home, again, that would have probably been a perfect rhyme at the time. Um, home and comb, maybe. Um, and so, yeah, the word is stay within this, in this stanza, but in the poem as a whole, the last word of the poem rhymes with its title. The first and the last rhyme with each other. The first is last and the last is first. So it's as though the poem, unbeknownst to its poet, unbeknownst to its speaker, um, comes up with an even more universal rhyme than the pray-stay rhyme. It comes, it comes up with the home-come rhyme. And um, that's wonderful. And that's the kind of thing that Herbert is always doing. So if you look at Jordan 1, which first let no. Um, this is a, an Ars Poetica, or at least a poem about what poetry should be about. Who says 
that fictions only and false hair become a verse. So who says that the only thing that poetry should be about is fiction and false hair? That's a little bit like Shakespeare's sonnet, My Lover's Eyes Are Nothing Like the Sun. Um, the idea is that most um, poems, most love poems, overpraise the beloved. Um, it's as though they're praising a version of the beloved with wigs and makeup and um, other um, ornaments on. And he says, who says that fictions only and false hair become a verse? Is there in truth no beauty? Um, who picks up on that line 200 years later? Keats, yes. Um, and a little bit after Keats, Emily Dickinson also, um, who loved Keats and loved George Herbert. Um, they were like two of her three favorite poets. And um, um, she has a poem which begins, um, I died for beauty, but was scarce adjusted in the tomb when one who died for truth was placed in an adjoining room. And um, so she's thinking of the other poet in the same tomb as hers, um, as Keats, but she's probably thinking about it through her, through Herbert. Um, so, um, yeah, is there in truth no beauty? Um, can't you find beauty in truth as well as in fiction? Is all good structure in a winding stair? What do you think that means? Yeah, and does it have to be also an elegant stairway, the kind of thing you would get um, in a house built to impress people rather than something that is straightforward? Yeah. Or can't, the, can't a good structure, can't a good poetic structure be straightforward? Yeah, Laura. Does Yeats have a book called The Winding Yes, Stair? he does. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether he knew Herbert. I never heard that he mentions Herbert, but mm. he may well have. Um, is, I mean, Herbert was recovered as a poet. He was not entirely forgotten, but not um, understood to be even... Um, if not quite major, important. He's now thought of as a major poet, um, but that's really over the last um, 50 or 75 years, uh, maybe the last century. Um, he was beginning to be seen to be an important poet at the end of the 19th century, and it's possible that Yeats was aware of that. As I say, Dickinson and Wordsworth and Coleridge and others before that really, really liked him, um, but they also really, really liked a whole lot of other poets you've never heard of. Um, and... Um, now he's, you know, one of the major 17th century poets. He's seen to be one of the major 17th century poets. So it's all good structure in a winding stair. Um, the, the answer to that rhetorical question is no. May no lines pass except they do their duty not to a true but painted chair. So are no lines um, to be um, regarded as real poetry unless they bend their knees not to the true throne but to a false one, to a painted one, to a fiction. Is it no verse 
except enchanted groves and sudden arbors, shadow, coarse, spun lines. So is that what you need for something to be poetry? And he may be thinking here of Spencer. Um, must purling streams refresh a lover's loves? Must all be veiled while he that reads divines catching the sense it too removes? Um, so again, that would be like Spencerian allegory. That is, that it's all just, you know, beautiful description, and it's actually even hard to follow, but maybe there's a meaning um, behind the meaning, and maybe a meaning behind that, and is that what poetry has to be? Shepherds are honest people, he now says. Let them sing. Riddle who list for me, and pull for prime. Um, so... The kinds of straightforward songs that shepherds sing, that's a good thing. Um, if you want your poems to be riddles, fine. Go ahead and write them. Um, pull for Prime is, um, you know, try to win the um, card game. Um, it's like, you know, try to shoot the moon is what a um, 20th or 21st century um, equivalent would be. So anyone who wants to tell a riddle, that's fine. And shoot the moon if you want to. I envy no man's nightingale or spring. So for me, it's not, you want to write about nightingales and springs and purling streams and refreshing a lover's love, that's all fine. I envy no man's nightingale or spring, nor let them punish me with loss of rhyme. Since I don't envy them, they shouldn't punish me either with loss of rhyme, who plainly say my God, my King. So let's live and let live. If they want to write all this um, beautiful but also um, hard to parse, maybe meaningless, maybe hard to interpret poetry about love and nightingales and um, waters and springs and so on, that's fine. I don't envy them. But don't let them punish me with loss of rhyme who plainly say, my God, my King. So don't let them say that that's not poetry. To punish me with loss of rhyme would mean to not permit me to rhyme would be the strongest version of that. Um, but um, less strong would be um, not permit me to regard what I do as poetry just because I plainly say, my God, my king. And of course, it's, it rhymes on the word king. That is, sing, spring, king. Um, those are the rhymes. And so the plain saying, my God, my king, is also a rhyme, um, comes as a rhyme. Um, Herbert has a couple of poems like that, but um, I just wanted to point out um, the extent to which what he's saying is, yes, I write poetry, and yes, I'm a believer and an anxious believer, um, in God, and um, we've seen how modest he is also um, as a person. I mean, he's an amazing poet, and um, he's also, I think, a really interesting lesson in um, a very rare um, combination of greatness as a poet without much arrogance. Um, that is, most great poets, um, part of what makes them great is that they, is that they say so. They make sure to tell you that. 
Um, and um, that doesn't mean that arrogance is their leading quality. Milton makes absolutely sure to tell you that he's a great poet. Um, but he also, in fact, the greatest poet who ever lived, he really wants that fact to be out there. Um, but also um, is aware that being the greatest poet who ever lived um, is not enough. That is that um, his arrogance, while universal from his point of view, in a sense is also self-aware as so what that he's the greatest poet who ever lived. It's what he's saying that matters because that has relevance to everyone and not only to himself. So the fact that great poets are almost always very arrogant, even if they pretend not to be, as Homer pretends not to be, um, the fact that great poets are almost always very arrogant um, just says something about what, what you have to um, be intending to be doing and what kind of person you have to be to intend to do such things if you're going to write great poetry. And Herbert is actually um, a pretty stunning counterexample to that general rule um, because um, his sense of vocation as a priest and minister to others um, goes right into his poetry. His poetry is amazingly clever, you know, as clever as Dunn's. Um, and amazingly beautiful and, and mellifluous, as beautiful and mellifluous as Johnson's, or Herrick's maybe, maybe not quite um, at Herrick's level, but close. Um, but not boastful about any of those things. And to the extent that it is boastful about them, the boasting all goes to God. That is that... Um, he really does trust the muse in a way that most poets who invoke the muse um, do officially, do by convention. Um, but for Herbert, it's a real issue. It's a live issue. And um, that's, that's a really neat and different um, experience of poetry that he's offering you. So an example of that is Easter Wings. Mm -hmm. Okay, before we leave this poem, yes. can I just tell you... I have a footnote in my copy of Jordan 1 that says that uh, the original Star Trek episode number 62 from the third season was entitled, Is There in Truth No Beauty? Wow. Isn't that cool? Wow, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was a pretty literate series, I have to say. Yeah. Um, okay, sorry, we are now reading Easter Wings. Right. The, and if you look at Easter Wings, it actually really looks hey. like Away. the Enterprise. <laughs> I thought it was a wing. No, but it does look like a wing, but it also looks like the Enterprise, doesn't it? What, you don't think so, Tim? I don't know. It doesn't look like you're talking about the spaceship. Yeah, the starship. Was, were shape poems common in the Renaissance? Um, no. Um, I mean, they were... More, they were <laughs> I'm pretty sure there were people before Herbert who did mm -hmm. them. But um, when you think of Renaissance shape poems, you think first of all of Herbert. Mm -hmm, yeah, this is this is called a shape poem for obvious reasons, and um, they're they're. Uh, Herrick did one. Yeah, and then there's a there's a volume I think of shape poems by John get, Hollander. Yeah, if you get curious about this, it, it's it's fun stuff. Yeah, it's called Types of Shape is the Hollander um, volume, and uh, you can Google parts. Of, some of it's online. Um, and all the poems are in the shape of the things they're about. So probably the best one is called Swan and Shadow. Mm -hmm. And um, 
so it looks like a swan on the surface of water with its reflection underneath. And um, every part of the swan is describing um, what it would be like to see a swan at sunset um, swimming by on the surface of a completely still lake. And um, then the one long line that the swan is on is a line describing the late lake in the perfect instant of its transition. And then the shadow is a kind of, many of the lines are reversals of their corresponding lines, like a mirror image. Um, so that you get um, that the water um, bears this image brightening, and it's bears as in reveals. Now, I think the top one is bears as in carries. And then the mirror image is the, sh the shadow or the reflection um, bears this image darkening, but there it's bears as in reveals, um, strips away everything from it until you only see the image. So there are reflections of lines like that. Um, the hourglass poems that we looked at are um, Ben Johnson's hourglass poem is a type of shape mm -hmm. poem. Herrick has that poem in the shape of a column. Um, and um, Merrill, James Merrill has some great shape poems, including one also, including two actually, also called The Hourglass, um, and um, an amazing poem called Pearl, which is sort of a shape poem with the very middle word being grit, because the pearl like is going around the grit as pearls, that's how pearls are formed. And maybe, possibly the last poem, Merrill wrote his poem called Christmas Tree, which is in the shape of a Christmas tree. Um, it's very, very beautiful. Um, not the shape. The shape is fine. But the poem itself is very, very beautiful. So Easter Wings, um, the way this book puts it, it says Easter Wings 1 and 2. It's not um, exactly clear um, that they should be numbered that way. Um, but um, it may be that it's a single poem called Easter Wings, um, but, but at any rate, it's in two stanzas and they go together. So, Lord who createdst man in wealth and store, though foolishly he lost the same, decaying more and more till he became most poor with thee, O oh, let me rise as larks harmoniously and sing this day thy victories. Then shall the fall further the flight in me. So you can see how that's a little bit in, in conceptual structure, like at the round earth, at the round earth's imagined corners, blow your trumpets, angels, and arise, arise, you numberless infinities of souls, and to your scattered bodies go. That is, it begins with a general um, description of humans, and then it becomes personal in the second half. Not mine. Which the fall further the flight. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. It's it's like Buzz Lightyear. That's not flying. Buzz that's Lightyear. falling gracefully. That's not what I think of. <laughs> <laughs> really? I mean, he even looks like Buzz Lightyear here. If that's, you that's squinted it the right way. Oh, stop. <laughs> Toy Story is the best. Oh. 
No? I haven't really seen it. You haven't really seen it? No. Oh, well, if you saw it, you would you would think it makes it better. Isn't it pretty lewd? Like, like isn't it no. about the devil on time? No, 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 no. no. I mean, they're, they're not really. Yeah, not really. I mean, you would have to have read a lot of Dunn um, <laughs> to find double entendres in Toy Story. The Rugrats movie is full of double entendres. Okay. And SpongeBob. Um, SpongeBob, of course. That was an adult swim show, right? And then it got. Yeah. 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 Pretty messed up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so let's look at the. Well, let's let's read the second stanza because because I think you can see that they really do go together. My tender age and sorrow did begin, and still with sicknesses and shame, thou did so punish sin that I became most thin. With thee, notice it's the same um, uh, sixth line. Is it sixth, seventh line? With thee, let me combine and feel this day thy victory. Instead of victories in the first one, now we get um, a singular victory. For if I imp my wing on thine, <coughs> affliction shall advance the flight in me. So then shall the fall further the flight in me. Affliction shall advance the flight in me. Um, in a sense, it's two versions of the same thing, as though the two stanzas of Easter wings, each of which looks like a pair of wings, themselves form um, a pair of wings too, as though each poem is a pair of wings. That makes sense in the second um, stanza, the second poem, the second set of wings, because both the speaker and Christ are flying together. Um, so there are two sets of wings. Um, the wings that Christ gives the speaker and the wings that Christ himself has. Um, and they do fly. That's why he says, if I imp my wing on thine, um, what that means is something close to grafting. That is, if my wing is, um, I'm just trying to see what their footnote on the word um, imp is. In graft, yeah. Um, so if I, um, my wings wouldn't take me to heaven, but if I um, graft my wings onto your wings, we can fly together. So it's tandem flying up to heaven and hence two sets of wings. Okay, so let's look at the first um, stanza. Lord who created man in wealth and store, so it's an address to God. Though foolishly he lost the same. So what happened? He flooded the world. No. Sorry? He fell when he flooded the world. No. What he fell when flooded. he flooded. Flooded. Why flooded? When he killed everyone because I think it's man who lost this. Yeah. Oh, that was he. God foolishly. Yeah. yeah. I created man and wealth and store, but man, I just wasn't really paying attention. And oh my God, I misplaced man. I had him right here. Oh, that is right from a certain point of view. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's, not what Herbert it's not Herbert's point of view. How <laughs> you know? We're not allowed to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> that is the question, right, in English classes. How do you know he didn't mean that? Yeah. Um, okay, so um, the uncapitalized H, uh, there you that's go. always cheating. There you um, go. It's only recently that you could count on capital H's, but nevertheless. Okay. So, Lord, you created man in wealth and store. Um, hang on to that idea of store. Um, it means um, 
full of um, um, full of full of wealth, full of provision, full of everything that someone would need. When you store something, you're storing it up for the future. Um, our word store, meaning shop, um, is not what it meant then. Um, store was um, what was what you put into storehouses. Um, so, and it's a word that's going to come up in a poem. In the poem, we'll maybe do next. Um, Lord, who created man in wealth and store, though foolishly he lost the same. So he, man, lost what? What God gave us. Yeah, wealth and store. Um, meaning the Garden of Eden, which gave us everything we could possibly need. So before we fell, we had wealth in store. We had everything we could have needed. Though foolishly, he lost the same. How did we lose it? Sin. Sin, and in particular by eating the apple. Um, that, was, that was foolish. That was a dumb thing to do. Um, decaying more and more. So it's not that just one time we, we fell, but that as soon as we started going off in the wrong direction, things just got worse and worse until he became most poor. Um, what's the rhyme scheme there? A, B, A, B. Go on. Oh, A, B, A, B, um, A. Right. So um, you have this, you, you have these rhymes um, which are pretty firm, A, B, A, B, A. Then they change to C, D, C, D, C. That is, there's a um, parallel or there's there, um, parallel structure in the first five lines and the second five lines, um, which is one, two, one, two, one. 3A rhymes, 2B rhymes, and then 3C rhymes, 2D rhymes. Um, so there is a parallel, but the rhymes change from the first half of the poem to the second, where, uh, or of the stanza to the second. Where is the middle of the stanza? What two lines form its middle two lines? Yeah, most poor and with thee. Um, and what's happening in the poem in those first five lines? Trying to fly. Okay, it's trying to fly. Um, it's reducing. Yeah. Decaying. Sorry? Decaying. It's decaying. What would you say about the first line? Um, what words might you use to describe how many words there are in the first line? The first line displays what as far as linguist wealth and storage. All right. A <laughs> lot of words stored in that first line. It's wealthy in words. So you can describe it metrically. It goes down from 10 to 8 to 6 to 4 to two syllables. Mm -hmm. So from pentameter to Tet tetrameter. No, tetrameter is the last one. Pentameter. Is ten. Yeah, tetrameter eight. is eight. Tetrameter, you're right. Uh, trimeter to du duometer. Duometer, yeah. To monometer. There, no, no, there's no monometer. Oh, you're right. Yes. With the, with the two, two symbols, monometer, right? Yeah, yeah. It goes down <laughs> right, yeah. from five. Do it as feet. It goes down from five feet to one foot. 
So it's five lines. Each line is a foot shorter than the previous line. So like coming to the ground, not flying? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it's describing, that you created man in wealth and store. Though foolishly, he lost the same. So he had all this wealth in store, but he lost it, and you can see him losing it, decaying more and more. You can see that that line is perfectly self-describing till he became most poor, almost hits bottom. One more line, and what will happen? I'll be over. He'll be gone. The end forever of man, if this were one line longer, following this pattern, with thee. But then what happens? God comes. God comes. That's the thee. At the point where man is about to hit bottom, God comes. And what do you make of the fact that God comes in a line that's a single foot long. Is that very godlike of him? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. The the wrong answer that was supposed to lead you to the right answer was, why no? That is very strange. And then you would say, oh wait, yes. Why yes? Because there's one God. Oh, okay, one God, nice. So monotheism monometer. Right. Well because when you have nothing Left. That's when he comes. That's, that's when he comes. Yeah. yeah. Remember the poem Redemption? Yeah. How does it go? Um, something. At length. Rent. <laughs> yeah, there's that. <laughs> At length I heard a noise and mirth of thieves and murderers. There I him espied, who straight your suit is granted, said, and died. That is, remember the way the poem Redemption works is, I was a tenant long to a rich lord, not thriving, and so I went to ask him to afford a new small rented lease and cancel the old. At heaven, at his manor, I him sought. They told me there that he was lately gone um, to earth about some land which he had dearly bought. He had lately gone um, on earth to take possession. Um, knowing his, I straight returned, and knowing his great birth, sought him accordingly. Do you have it? Mm-hmm. Read it. Go from there. No, go ahead. No. <laughs> no, because then <laughs> you'll tell... Sought him accordingly in great resorts, in cities, theaters, gardens, parks, and courts. At length I heard a ragged noise and mirth of thieves and murderers. There I him espied, who straight your suit is granted, said, and died. Yeah, so God is rich. Christ is rich. He has all this wealth. And... I wanted to find him because I was most poor. I couldn't afford what I had to pay. But I went to see this great rich man, and I looked for him everywhere among the places of the rich. Um, the infinitesimal percent, um, because he's the richest person in the universe. Um, I looked for him everywhere. And where did I find him? Among the absolutely abject poor. Now, why is, why is that where Christ is found? What story is Herbert telling there, that the place you find Christ is among the poor, not among the rich? What is the theology behind that?
What's the difference between a religion that says if you want to find Christ, what you have to really do is go to um, the gated communities of Tahoe, where <laughs> um, the richer are uh, the evangelic, like, uh, like Lutheran, <laughs> or isn't it like a? I can't think of a Methodist Protestant. Kind of like, it's not particularly Protestant. It's um, I just listed like ten different ones. All right. Well, think think of um, like a Methodist church. They go around and they do um, and they do things for for less rock people, don't they? Yeah. I know a Methodist. Someone's Methodist, and that's what they do. And doing like, a bunch of missionary trips. Yeah. Stuff. Or think of the current Pope. What's he doing? That what is so amazing and surprising. What were the things that that? You kiss a leper. Yeah, he washed. He was washing women's feet. He was kissing lepers. He was spending time with the poor. Why did he just not get it? <laughs> was that the True point? That's what Christianity is supposed to be. Which is what? Which is about helping the poor, charitable work thing. Um, you ask what story yeah, it comes from. No, no. What is the story that's being told? Not what story uh, does it come from? The meek shall inherit the earth. Yeah. But it's also a story of no matter how mired you are in dust and sin, no matter how sinful you think you are, how um, undeserving of salvation you believe yourself to be, um, how terrible, how terribly you've lived, how you couldn't possibly... Um, even face God because God would be so shocked by what you've done because above these my sins abound again to quote done um, even if you are the lowest of the low God's sacrifice of himself or the son's sacrifice of himself is that he will get, go as low as you are he will suffer as much as you do um, he will have the experience um, not, he won't do what sinners do, but he will have the experience um, that sinners suffer, um, that the worst of sinners suffer, he will take on that experience as well. The experience that the worst of sinners deserve he will take on for himself. Um, so the idea is that he will go down to the lowest most craven, most um, abject and terrible level in order to save those who are there. Um, that's what Nathaniel West calls, or has his, his evil character Shrike called, leper licking. <laughs> um, leper, because God is, God displays leper licking good. Sorry, I couldn't help that. God, he's leper licking good. Um, <laughs> And um, that's Mother Teresa, or at least that's um, what she is um, demonstrating to the world, to go to the poorest, the most abject, the apparently least savable, and save them. And that's what humans are. So most poor, that's where we got to. But thee, with thee, even though we're most poor, we are still with thee. Because you come down to that single foot, that monometrical line right in the middle of the stanza. And 
then when I say, oh, let me rise by praying to you, I begin to rise. So now, this, now the lines start lengthening again. We're returning to the pentameter. Oh, let me rise as larks harmoniously. Um, no one more than Herbert, it's part of that sense of conversationalism in him, um, that no one more than Herbert will use long adverbs mm. in his poems. Um, sought him accordingly in theaters and courts, though foolishly he lost the same. Oh, let me rise as larks harmoniously. It's um, interesting because usually long adverbs aren't harmonious. They don't sound like <coughs> mm -hmm. This one does. It's a beautiful yeah. one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's almost as though um, on some subliminal level, subliminally, um, on some subliminal level, foolishly, three syllables, is being um, recovered and changed and transformed into the longer and more beautiful and more hopeful adverb harmoniously. So, Lord who created man in wealth and store, though foolishly he lost the same, oh, let me rise as larks harmoniously. Yeah. Yeah, it's also um, a case, the case that the poverty, quote unquote, of the language is giving way to a wealth in the language because you've got the monosyllables, till most poor with thee. And that's where the, the, the poem is at its um, poverty bottleneck. Yeah. Um, with those simple words. Um, and then harmoniously, um, mm -hmm. it's um, suddenly the language itself becomes um, plush. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they're the birds also, as larks. That is, the Easter wings are the wings of larks. Larks are known for flying incredibly high so that they're lost to sight. And for what else? For sweet songs. Yeah, Shakespeare talks about the lark at heaven's gate, um, hence the movie title. But the lark at heaven's gate, larks fly all the way up to the gate of heaven, and there they sing. You can't see them, but you can hear them. So, oh, let me rise as larks harmoniously, and sing, like larks, and sing this day thy victories, then shall the fall further the flight in me. That is, although I fell, man fell, you come down and you sweep down to where we are, and now we go higher than the place from which we fell. Um, so it's sort of like whoosh to all the way to heaven. Um, so it's shaped like a wing, but what's within the wing is a description of um, a fall and then a flight. Um, so the, and um, that is described both by the language and by the length of each individual line, and also by the switch in rhymes. That is, that in the very middle of this poem, the two middle lines don't rhyme with each other. So you get A, B, A, B, A, and then C, D, C, D, C, but the pairing of lines gives you a pair of lines in the middle that don't rhyme with each other, and that's the point. 
that what I am is most poor. But then you, who are entirely different, not a rhyme with poor, but something that will change the whole set of rhymes, you come to where I am and you hit reset at that point. So second stanza, similar enough, but worth looking at. My tender age in sorrow did begin. So now he's talking about himself individually, not man foolishly lost, losing wealth in store. But my tender age in sorrow did begin. And still with sicknesses and shame, thou didst so punish sin that I became most thin. So what's happening at the middle of this stanza? What are the lines becoming? Thin. Thin. <laughs> Most thin. As thin as they can possibly be. And then we get the with thee again. So once again, so I became most thin, but there you were. With thee, let me combine and feel this day thy victory. Feel that you um, have, have defeated dust and sin, defeated um, man's foolishness, defeated um, sickness and shame. Um, it's Easter, which is the day of Christ's res resurrection. Um, so, he's, so he's rising. Let me combine and feel this day thy victory, for if I imp my wing on thine, on your wing, affliction shall advance the flight in me. The affliction that I felt will um, advance the flight yeah. Is there also a hint of um, the other meaning that Christ's affliction, yes. um, his crucifixion, yes, and uh, will and 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 consequently resurrection, right, will um, advance the flight in me. Yes, exactly. Um, there are a bunch of poems called Affliction that Herbert wrote. Five different poems with the title Affliction. Um, one of them is on the next page, um, and I quoted from you from that on Tuesday, the last line of that poem. Last two lines, ah, my dear God, though I am clean forgot, let me not love thee if I love thee not, um, which is the same structure as we've been looking at. But let's look at the poem um, called The Flower, um, which is another example of fall and recovery. Um, that's part of um, why it is. It's on page 280. Um, why it is that arrogance just wouldn't work um, for Herbert. Um, so this amazing opening line, how fresh, O oh Lord, how sweet and clean are thy returns. Um, just such a wonderful idea of, wow, how fresh, O oh Lord, how sweet and clean are thy returns, even as the flowers in spring, to which besides their own demean, the late past frosts, tributes of pleasures bring. Um, so your returns are like flowers returning in spring, which are great not only because flowers are beautiful, but because the frost is gone. And that itself is a pleasure. It's not only that the flowers come and that's great, but also 
that there's further pleasure that the suffering of winter is over. Grief melts away like snow in May, as if there were no such cold thing. So that's what the return of belief of God, of feeling the presence of God feels like. Who would have thought my shriveled heart could have recovered greenness? So just that sudden personalization here. It's not only, oh, congregation, isn't it great when, you, when God returns to you? But he's talking about himself. Who would have thought my shriveled heart could have recovered greenness? It was gone quite underground. So my heart was shriveled. It went underground. I was full of despair and melancholy. Just as flowers depart to see their mother root, when they have blown, that is, after they have um, bloomed and blossomed, where they together, all the hard weather, dead to the world, keep house unknown. So my heart went underground like flowers, keeping house underground with their roots during the winter. These are thy wonders, Lord of power, killing and quickening, bringing down to hell, that is to underground, bringing down to hell and up to heaven in an hour, making a chiming of a passing bell. So a passing bell is for whom the bell tolls. That is a passing bell is a bell tolling the passing of someone. Um, but And a passing bell is very monotonous and mournful if you just hear the same bell sound over and over and over again. You know this from movies. That's always the sound of the funeral sound. The bell, when there's a funeral scene in a movie, is always the same ding, 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 and that's a passing bell. Um, a chiming is when you actually get harmony in the bells, more than one um, bell alone. So again, they in my mind may chime and mend my rhyme. Um, Herbert, at church, is quite aware that chiming means something different from death, that death doesn't go with chiming. So that's what you do. You make a chiming of a passing bell. You turn something that looked like death back into life. We say amiss, this or that is. Thy word is all, if we could spell. Um, so we think that things are one way or another way, but that's wrong. The only thing that exists and that is everything is your word. Oh, that I once past changing were, fast in thy paradise, where no flower can wither. So if only I were in heaven, were a flower in heaven where winter wouldn't come and I wouldn't go underground. Many a spring I shoot up fair, offering at heaven, that is, aiming at heaven. Um, Robert Frost talks about how the um, birch trees, how when you climb a birch tree, you're climbing toward heaven, offering at heaven, growing and groaning thither. Nor doth my flower want a spring shower. So this metaphor still works, he's saying. I get spring showers my sins and I joining together when I weep over my sins. I water my flower by weeping over my sins. But while I grow in a straight line, still upwards bent, 
as if heaven were mine own. So there, there's that slight possibility of arrogance. I'm a flower. I'm going, offering it heaven. I'm going up towards heaven. I'm crying, and I feel good because that's watering me. So that's a good thing too. And yeah, I'm going to get to heaven. Oft while that's happening, thy anger comes and I decline. Suddenly, I wither or I droop. Um, I feel melancholy, I feel miserable, and that's a sign of your anger. And I feel melancholy and miserable because you're angry. What frost to that? What frost is as cold and terrible as your anger? What pole is not the zone where, where all things burn? So even the North Pole would be compared to your anger like the equator. What pole is not the zone where all things burn when thou dost turn and the least frown of thine is shown? So I thought I was doing pretty well. Spring after spring, I would grow towards heaven. But then something happened, some terrible fit of despair and melancholy, which... Um, seems to have been the case, that is, that Herbert um, did suffer from melancholy. And he saw that as God withdrawing grace and love from him. That, again, is why these poems are so the opposite of arrogant. And now, so this is a late poem. He's getting old. 36, 37. <laughs> he died at 40. Um, and now in age I bud again after so many deaths I live and write and notice how being able to write for him is the sign of God's grace and now in age I bud again after so many deaths I live and write I once more smell the dew and rain and relish versing so he's back to liking writing Poetry, And for him, that's a sign that things are good. I relish versing. Oh, my only light, it cannot be that I am he on whom thy tempests fell all night. So now it's daytime, it's morning, it's spring, it's bright, it's light. And I'm loving writing poetry again. And I feel saved. And I'm amazed by what I've gone through. And then we get to the last stanza. These are thy wonders, Lord of love. What is that chiming with earlier? Yeah, these are thy wonders, Lord of power. But now we get from Lord of power to Lord of love. These are thy wonders, Lord of love. To make us see we are but flowers that glide. That we're flowers gliding through life, gliding through the world, which when we once can find and prove, once we really know it, once we've really experienced that fact, thou hast a garden for us where to bide. So once we know that we're flowers, that's a really important lesson for us to learn, that we're flowers. Because once we really know that we're flowers, then we'll be ready to be in the garden of the best flowers, heaven. Thou hast a garden for us where to bide. Who would be more? That is someone who wants to be more than a flower. Swelling 
through store forfeit their paradise by their pride. So those who want to be more than flowers want to um, swell with possession, with store, they forfeit paradise out of pride. Um, the metaphor or the, the metaphysical conceit is still working here because the idea is that flowers are springtime. Um, plants flower in the spring. Um, some flower late, but the point is that the life cycle of a plant is first it flowers, then it fruits, then it goes to seed. And the idea is the way he's thinking of this conceit. That's why you talk about people who've gone to seed. Uh, that is, oh, man, um, she's really gone to seed since the last time I saw her. Um, and um, the idea is that um, what, fl what plants do is they flower, then they fruit, then they get filled with seed, and that's the sign of the individual plant's senescence. Um, it goes from being young and fresh to um, wanting fruit and being wealthy with fruit um, and then being filled with seed. Um, and for Herbert, that is wanting to be more than a flower wanting to swell through store, um, wanting all this fruit and all this seed to be your own. Um, and But being a flower, that's paradise, and that's what you will be in heaven if you don't forfeit it through the pride of wanting more than that. Yeah? Can I ask you a question? I, I, I've always been curious about the thy in... It cannot be that I am he on whom thy tempests fell all night. Um, and I mean, obviously, it refers to God's tempests. But um, what is there? A, it, is there a cause and effect scenario behind this? I mean, is it God's tempests because whatever happens to you happens to you because it's God's will? So he can have a hard time, and you know that's that's you know, ultimately up to God whether or not he has a hard time? Or does it imply that he has been himself specifically punished or and or alternatively that he has been um, punished to the end that he should repent? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this happens at home. This is a big joke. My kids say to him, which is better, Moby Dick or Paradise Lost? And he says, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so all those things yeah Okay. I mean don't you think what do you think um, what do you think well I guess that it goes to the question of also what do you mean my kids <laughs> <laughs> you're right you got a point there thy kids um, <laughs> it goes to the question of what it is that he was suffering from um so what do we know? We know that he had grief. Grief melts away like snow in May. We know that he had a shriveled heart. Um, we know, let's see, that he felt that he was unchanging, and the miracle is that, that he did change. Um, and what I'm trying to understand is whether he felt spiritual guilt. Well, I think, I think that's um, 
what the um, stanza beginning at line 29 says. But mm-hmm. while I grow in a straight line, still mm-hmm. upwards bent, as if heaven were mine own, mm-hmm. thy anger comes and I decline. Mm-hmm. So that um, the anger is the tempest yeah. that falls on him all night. And what he's proud of is um, that many a spring I shoot up fair, offering it heaven, growing and groaning thither, nor doth my flower want a spring shower, my sins and I joining together. Um, in a way, he's proud of the fact that he's weeping over his own sins. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, it's a, a pretty subtle form of religious pride here, um, which takes the form of, you could say, mm-hmm. his being proud of his own humility. Mm-hmm. Look at me, I'm a flower, I'm growing and groaning, and I'm crying over my own sins and mm-hmm. watering myself, and I'm going towards heaven that way, and I'm, I'm growing in this straight line, upwards bent, as if heaven is mine own, because I, I, I feel guilty enough that I'm sure to be saved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a kind of proud guilt there, mm-hmm. um, because he, he thinks by, being, by feeling sure that I'll be saved... Um, by feeling guilty, I can be sure that I'm saved. And you know, you guys, you don't know enough to feel guilty, but I am guilty, um, and therefore God loves me. And um, that's wrong. And that's um, his loss of that certainty. If you psychologize this, which I think you can in Herbert, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what to to repeat what I was saying on Tuesday. That's what makes Herbert so valuable to us. Is you don't have to see this in any way it's religious poetry. It's what it really is, um, is poetry about whether you can feel um, at home in the world or not, Um, whether you can feel um, um, in harmony with yourself or not, Um, and what whether you can face going deeply into your own feelings or not, into um, your own relationship to the world, whether that's something you can avoid or need to avoid or something that you can confront and whether confronting it will help you. There's um, the psychological reading of Herbert is what makes him a great poet. I mean, I'm sure he was always a great poet for... Um, people who believed, and that's what his followers felt, people like Vaughn and Crashaw and so on, um, that if you were a believer, Herbert was um, an amazing describer of um, belief. But you don't have to be a believer to see that he's an amazing describer of human psychology, where that psychology takes the form of anxiety about um, your place, uh, anxiety about, about um, being in the world and um, finding ways of coping or not coping with that anxiety, facing up to it or not facing up to it. And um, so if you substitute, um, it's hard to say what you would substitute for God in Herbert, but if you substitute something like, um, even like mood for God, as though moods you, as though moods were are things that come over you, and um, what makes you what you are, what human psychological um, labor is, is dealing with your own moods, finding ways to um, confront and um, 
rethink and analyze and um, go through and, to use the Freudian terminology, work through your own moods, work, you know, work them out, work them through. Um, then um, that sense of something coming to you from elsewhere, which nevertheless is you, but which is you in a way that um, your thinking about the way that it's you can change what you are. Um, you don't need God for that. You can, you can have that be um, just um, anxiety about the world um, and about your own, con your, own, your own being as a conscious um, soul within the world. Um, we'll give you the same the same psychological, um, will confront you with the same psychological issues. And um, you can describe your, the same psychological interactions with those things um, in Herbert's language. Um, and I think that's what makes him so amazing, why people go to him for consolation who have no belief whatever in God, like Dickinson. Um, whose only belief in God was contempt, was contempt for the very possibility that he might exist. Um, <laughs> Burglar, banker, father. Yeah. That's what yeah. she says. <laughs> yeah. And those are, that's like worse and worse. It's <laughs> her point. Burglar, banker, father. Yeah. yeah no, there's even, the, my favorite lines of the poem are, um, oh, my only light, it cannot be that I am he on whom thy tempests fell all night. Um, this kind of expression of wonder at the transformation in himself that is um, that he doesn't feel he was responsible for it came over him. But it's an illustration of your favorite line from uh, one of your favorite lines from Emerson: "Our moods don't believe in each other." Yeah, right? yeah. Our moods do not believe in each other. Whatever mood you're in, you don't believe in the other moods you might be in. And um, yeah, that's what makes them like God. We don't it. <laughs> it cannot be that I am being. Yeah. Um, I think what we're going to do is, um, since we're having that optional final class, um, which was going to be on Herbert, we'll just we'll just do Herbert one more day. That way, we'll have our three days on Herbert. Um, so let's look now for the last one for today at the poem called "The Forerunners," page two eighty four, in the Norton. So this is another poem of, about old age, about the old age she's experiencing. It did feel like old age then, by the way. Um, average lifespan in Shakespeare's day was ridiculously low, um, like 28. Um, but that is if you include infant mortality, which is very, very high, um, for people who got who lived into their teens, their average lifespan was more like to 40. <coughs> so 40, you know, basically 80 is the new 40. Um, people who were 40 then were thinking of themselves as having about as much time left as people who are 80 now do. Um, they were probably more optimistic because people are idiots. Um, but that's about the, the kind of time they had left. Um, so here's Herbert feeling old. 
um, The Forerunners, amazing title. The Harbingers are come. Harbingers of what? Forerunners of what? Well, of death. It's coming. Incredible first line if you think about it. Once you realize that's what it means. The harbingers are come. See, see their mark. White is their color. So they've come, um, as the footnote tells you, um, when they come, they will put chalk on doors to um, indicate where the king is going to spend the night. Um, so you had no choice. It was like sticking a, an official poster on your door saying the king will stay here. But they use chalk, sort of like in Passover. Um, and the idea is chalk is white. So the harbingers are come. See, see their mark. White is their color. So they come and they chalk the doors. And the, so therefore their color is white. White is their color. And behold my head. Meaning? You got a little right there. You got a little right there. <laughs> Sorry. What were you saying? <laughs> yes, right. Um, no one in this room, but. No. I don't have white hair. <laughs> okay. So, and behold my head. You can see white hair on my head. But must they have my brain? So, relevant to the old. Must they dispark those sparkling notions which therein were bred? So, um, I have all these sparkling ideas, but I'm losing it. To use the word I just learned, horrible word, I'm dementing. Yeah, yeah isn't that horrible? Um, must they dispark those sparkling notions which therein were bred? That is, drive them out of the park, which is my brain, those sparkling notions which therein were bred? Must dullness turn me to a clod? Yet have they left me the following. Thou art still my God. At least I have that. So I'm no longer able to write poetry well. My facility with language is um, disparking from me, and no sparkling notions are left. I mean, this poem is self-contradictory, but um, that's his anxiety. Um, but they did leave me one line, thou art still my god. Good men ye be to leave me my best room. So even though you're taking over my house, you're leaving me my best room. Namely, even all my heart and what is lodged there, I pass not, I, what of the rest become. That is, I don't care what happens to the rest of the house. So, thou art still my God, be out of fear. As long as I get to keep that, thou art still my God. As long as that's not in danger, you can have the rest. He will be pleased with that ditty, Namely, just that one line, Thou art still my God. He will be pleased with that ditty, and if I please him, I write fine and witty. So that's all good. That's the only line I need to write. There's a whole poem, Thou art still my God. But then, is it? Farewell, sweet phrases, lovely metaphors, if I can no longer write them. But will ye leave me thus, when ye before of stews and brothels only knew the doors? Then did I wash you with my tears, and more brought you to church well-dressed and clad. My God must have my best, even all I had. So that's like Jordan 1. People used to use metaphors and sweet phrases only to try and seduce women. 
And I brought those metaphors and sweet phrases to church and made them holy and gave them to God, well-dressed and clad, because that was my best, even all I had. Lovely, enchanting language. Sugar cane. Honey of roses. Whither wilt thou fly? So let's stop there, and we'll pick up um, there on Tuesday. But yeah, he's losing his language. Lovely, enchanting language. Sugar cane, honey of roses. Whither wilt thou fly? Harmoniously. Um, harmoniously, but yeah, an amazing, quite harmoniously, but an amazingly sad line. Why are you departing from me? And here's what he thinks about language. Lovely, enchanting language. It's wonderfully direct about what he's doing, what he cares about when he's not caring about God. Okay, have a good weekend. Okay.